Hello and welcome to the second podcast of Mike's Notes. I'm Mike Dariano. I write the website thewaiterspad.com where I try to figure out what are some of the common themes of success in humanity, in artistry, in business, and investing, and many other things. And today's topic comes from a trio of areas, and the larger topic is optionality and what the value of keeping your options open is and why that's important. And we're going to rely on the work of three people today. Uh, The first is Nassim Taleb, the investor, philosopher, and author of such books as The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile. One note, if you're a fan of Nassim, you should certainly check out his Facebook page because he's been sharing uh, certain pieces of his next book. And if it's anything like the other books, it'll be uh, quite uh, quite good. The second character that we'll rely on is Donald Trump. Uh, yes, that Donald Trump media personality, real estate developer, and 2016 Republican nominee as of November 2015. If you listen to this in the future, uh, who knows what that will bring. And the final uh, character in our uh, trio is B.H. Little Hart. Hart is a British uh, historian uh, who wrote uh, many books. He wrote for the uh, Times and other London newspapers, and we will be relying on his views of history uh, to look at optionality. Uh, one quick note on this podcast we'll be addressing Adolf Hitler. And because Hitler is in this episode, I feel compelled to point to Godwin's Law, uh, which is an internet adage. This is quoting Wikipedia. An internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. That is, if an online discussion, regardless of topic or scope, goes on long enough, sooner or later, someone will compare someone or something to Hitler or Nazism. Now, having said that, I want to quote Philip Tetlock, who is the author of the book Super Forecasting. And in Tetlock's book, he has this laser-like accuracy of what makes someone a good forecaster. And it applies to larger life as well. People can have good ideas even if you don't like all of what they do. And Tetlock writes, uh, Remember, this book's laser-like focus on accuracy. Don't fall for bait-and-switch. Bait-and-switch is when you try to uh, answer an easier question uh, rather than a harder question. So um, people who immediately say all of Hitler's ideas are bad are answering the question, is Hitler bad, rather than is uh, many of his ideas are bad. Uh, Tetlock continues, It should not matter whether you see the forecaster as an adulterer or an affable television host or a skilled speechwriter or a Wall Street insider or a Prussian imperialist or of an Ivy League sexist. It shouldn't even matter whether the forecaster is Adolf Hitler, who, in the early years of the Third Reich, saw more clearly than any other German leader just how far the West would go toward appeasing him. The tenacity with which people raise these irrelevant questions tells us how hard it is to treat forecasting as a pure accuracy game. In another line of my research, I have called this tendency functionalist blurring. 
end quote. So Tetlock's big point is that we can take ideas from people even if some of their other ideas are bad or crazy or hurtful or harmful. Anecdotally, I remember this being at the gym that I work out in, and there's a trainer there who is a big, muscular guy, um, and basically the opposite of everything I am. And his goals are, uh, on appearance, the opposite goals that I have for exercise. And I never asked his advice on anything until I talked to a friend who reminded me not to conflate his goals with my goals. I was doing what Tetlock and uh, before him Daniel Kahneman says, I was answering the easier question rather than the harder question, even though that was the wrong question. That trainer at the gym knows a lot about health. He knows more about health and training and fitness than I do, but he doesn't apply the same goals to me. So I could have gone to him and found great answers, I'm sure, but I didn't because I fell for the bait and switch that Tetlock warns us about. So uh, with that introduction aside, let's get on to the big idea of optionality. Uh, optionality really works well um, when there's a big payout. That's the big thing to keep in mind. Uh, and this can apply um, for... Uh, financial investments, and it can apply to things even as simple as where you want to eat dinner. Um, in Anti-Fragile, Nassim Taleb writes this, It is a Saturday afternoon in London. I am coping with a major source of stress, where to go tonight. I am fond of the brand of the unexpected one finds at parties. Going to parties has optionality, perhaps the best advice for someone who wants to benefit from uncertainty with low downside. So what Nassim is writing about in Anti-Fragile is that uh, he wants to think of his options in the night. And then it, it matters, too, because he could go to a party or he could go to dinner. And both of them are going to have food and both of them are going to have company. But a party has different optionality because there's more people there. Uh, his point of emphasis in this section of the book is that uh, there's a lot of upside at a party because there's many people there. He could meet someone totally enchanting or um, someone that can debate uh, him on his intellectual level, uh, whatever that is. Um, but it can also apply to other things. Um, Talib also talks about uh, how optionality is good for rent, where if you're renting an apartment, uh, you have the option to stay or the option to leave. The optionality is really in the case of the renter rather than the landlord. Uh, and so optionality has great upside, a low downside, and it also isn't that hard to implement. Uh, later in Anti-Fragile, Talib writes, quote, All you need is the wisdom to not do unintelligent things to hurt yourself, some acts of omission, and recognize favorable outcomes when they occur, unquote. So you just have to not be stupid to embrace optionality and uh, that is a key point for this, is that so long as you don't shoot yourself in the foot, um, you'll be in good shape. The second uh, person that we're going to look at is Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is also a big fan of optionality. In his book, The Art of the Deal, Trump opens with what an average uh, day of his looks like, and um, there's almost certainly embellishments on his part, uh, but he does talk about um, why he's holding off on doing a deal with Holiday Inn. 
and um, he doesn't want to do a deal with them because the price isn't right and um, the contracts or the properties isn't the right number. So while Trump is talking to them about a deal, he doesn't get into a deal. And his terming is that he keeps refreshing his options. He keeps um, letting things uh, come to him. Later on in his career, uh, he invests in a, an apartment complex in Cincinnati. And about that apartment complex, he writes, it takes almost the same amount of energy to manage 50 units as it does 1,200 units, except that with 1,200 units, you have a much bigger upside, end quote. So uh, what Trump is saying in that part of the book is that the work is the same for 50 or 1,200, but the payoff is really different. And that gets back to the key point of optionality, is that you need a big upside. Um, if there was a 50-unit apartment complex available, Trump probably wouldn't have purchased it. Uh, he could have passed and he could have waited. And that's a big part of Trump's book. And uh, part of his real estate, um, real estate success is whatever you think about Donald Trump or how Donald Trump got started or uh, Donald Trump's bankruptcy or any of those things, um, look at his patience in certain areas and his investments in certain areas. And it would be easy for someone who didn't know what they were doing to uh, not be in Donald Trump's position now. But he is successful. And part of the reason of that is because he has um, collected uh, and used the idea of optionality. Our third example of optionality is going to come from B.H. Uh, Little Hart's book, Strategy. Uh, and the entire title is The Classic Book on Military Strategy. Uh, it's really a nice book that I'm halfway through right now. But a key part is how Hart talks about optionality. And uh, here is when we will get to the point of uh, uh, Hitler that we referenced in the beginning. Quote, the true purpose of strategy is to diminish the possibility of resistance. And from this follows another axiom that to ensure attaining an objective, one should have alternative, alternative, alternative objectives. An attack that converges on one point should threaten and be able to diverge against another. Only by this flexibility of aim can strategy be attuned to the uncertainty of war. Hart continues, Whether by instinct or reflection, Hitler acquired an acute grasp of these strategic truths which few soldiers had recognized. He applied this psychological strategy in the political campaign by which he gained control of Germany, exploiting the weak points of the Weimar Republic, playing on human weaknesses, alternatively playing off capitalist and socialist, playing capitalist and socialist interests against each other, appearing to turn first in one direction and then in another, so that by successive indirect steps he approached his goal. End quote. Hart's point regarding Hitler is that he didn't have a single goal. If he would have uh, pursued one aim, he probably would have failed. Instead, he kept his options open. This is a big part of Hart's book. Um, many of the military strategies that he references uh, are about keeping your optionalities open. Uh, in the Civil War, uh, Hart writes about the different strategies of the North and the South, and a large part of it was with General Sherman's March to the Sea, which, in Hart's terms, was a classic indirect approach. Uh, Hart uses the term indirect uh, synonymous with 
optionality. About this, he writes, quote, Moreover, in this March, Sherman developed a new strategic practice. and the Atlantic campaign, he had been handicapped, as he realized, by having a single geographical objective, thus simplifying the opponent's task in trying to parry his thrusts, end quote. So we'll stop there and point out that at this point in time, railroads had come into being used in war. And Hart's point is that a lot of armies overemphasized their reliance on railroads. So wherever a railroad dead ended, uh, that is where uh, the armies would be limited to, and they would be limited to the tracks along, uh, along the railroad. So uh, in this, uh, Hart is saying that Sherman is not doing this. So uh, back to the book, quote, This limitation Sherman now ingeniously planned to avoid by placing the opponent repeatedly, quote, on the horns of a dilemma, end quote. The phrase he used to express his aim, he took a line of advance which kept the Confederates in doubt, first whether Macon or Augusta, and then whether Augusta or Savannah was his objective. And while Sherman had his preference, he was ready to take the alternate objective if conditions favor the change. They did not need a rise, thanks to the uncertainty caused by his deceptive direction, end quote. So what Sherman has done is he has decided to Uh, not rely on the railroad. Sherman has um, adapted the Napoleonic strategy of living off the land. Uh, his lines of communication have changed. Plus, Sherman is approaching from the west. And in that, um, the structures aren't as strong. So, uh, whereas some armies had to rely on the structure of railroad and communication, uh, Sherman is just thrusting uh, south, and he is not Uh, forcing himself to go in any one direction, where if the, uh, if the Confederacy had thought that Sherman was certainly going to Savannah, they could have reinforced Savannah, and then when Sherman arrived, um, he, he likely would have been turned back, which is another key part of Hart's military book, is that the entrenched, the entrenched interests uh, have the benefit of defending Of, of defense, and it's much easier to defend than it does attack. Uh, and so, in not letting the enemy know, Sherman was able to uh, use optionality to succeed. So the big idea with optionality is to wait and wait and wait, and then only when the moment is right to, uh, to select an option. Tlaib didn't commit to dinner until he knew who was going. Trump didn't buy a building until it was a good deal, and Sherman didn't march to the sea on a fixed path. Each of these people chose optionality over a forced choice, and that made all the difference for them.